Growing up in the shiny happy people cult was an extremely difficult experience. The brainwashing and religious indoctrination left permanent scars on a lot of people. And there are so many that are still struggling with the mental and emotional trauma from growing up in a cult. I wanted to talk to an expert about the impacts of growing up in a cult. So I invited my favorite mental health advocate, influencer and internet therapist, Dr. Kristen Casey to talk today. Dr. Casey, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's an honor to be here with you, Davey. Well, we'll see. We'll see how much of an honor you think it is. <laughs> yeah, I might, I might dip out. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, right. you know this goes. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I can't wait for you to tell me about all my problems and how to fix them instantly, obviously. Uh, so this is going to be just a, a really fun experience for, for me and, and everyone watching because, you know, we, we all deal with with very similar trauma growing mm -hmm. up this way. I mean, it's not limited to the shiny, happy people cult. Sure. Fundamental Christianity in general, just, uh, man, it really uh, it really ruins some lives. Have you have you dealt with anything like that, like with your clients or advice that you've given? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the more that I talk to my clients, the more that I realize that a lot of them have religious trauma um, and a lot of them have grown up in circumstances that are either cult or cult-like, you know, right. uh, depending on how they define it. But it, it really has long-lasting effects. And I think the lasting effects could be negative. They could be neutral. Um, it could make people really funny, you know? So people say, oh, my trauma made me funny. It was really traumatic. And it also, you know, helps in some ways in terms of like your own personality. But at the end of the day, it's still really hard to go through. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It definitely is. And looking back, you know, obviously it was it was a difficult experience. But mm -hmm. at the same time, like, I feel like we can still find some humor in the mm -hmm. struggle. Of course. Why, do you why is it that you know, typically speaking, like stand up comedians, funny people, like they have this incredibly traumatic background. Have you figured that out? I have noticed that and I'm still trying to think more deeply about it. And I think comedians are really, really good at compartmentalizing. You're really good at really noticing like, okay, I went through some things, you know what I mean? And I can find humor in it. And that might be a way to cope. Who knows? I also think you're able to, and not just you, just any comedian that I, at least that I've known, even if you go through something really traumatic, the humor helps you connect with it. You know, it helps mm. you really connect with those moments and connect with other people who might have the similar experiences. It's yeah. just a way to connect, I think. That, that's true. It is a bit of a coping mechanism, for sure. Yeah. I'd rather laugh than cry. Of course. Um, <laughs> and the whole compartmentalization thing, that, that's an interesting one because I've been told repeatedly uh, by various women that I've dated that I compartmentalize too much. Mm. <laughs> oh it's boy. A problem. It's like, I yeah. never really know how you feel because it seems like you just take every emotion and put it away in a little box uh, until you're ready to deal with it. You know, I mean, sometimes it keeps people safe. And then sometimes I, I notice for people who grow up in um, either cults or environments where they didn't have many uh, choice points, they don't have a lot of autonomy, just mental autonomy they kind of feel like they don't have a voice. And in that, mm. they might not have a voice for their emotions. So they might, and again, this isn't every person, just some observations, but they might stuff it down because they don't think anybody really wants to hear it, <laughs> you know? And then you go through your whole life that way. And then guess what? You start dating and you're like, I'm just doing the same thing that I normally did, you know? Oh yeah, yeah, it's a problem. It, it really is. You're yeah. right about that though. I think there's a lot of people who have been through this kind of trauma and for a long time, they don't talk about it at all. And then all of a sudden they're ready to talk about it and then you can't get them to shut up. Right. Because then it's like the floodgates are open. It's like, oh gosh, what do we do about it? Yeah. And and most of the time I just, I don't want to hear about it. You yeah. Know? Uh, yeah. So there, there's friends that I grew up with in the cult 
mm-hmm. um, that stayed, you know, kind of a part of that lifestyle. I separated from the cult when I was 18, but 18, they kind of wow. stayed in that mentality until they were in their you know, late twenties, early thirties, even late thirties wow. sometimes. And then once they finally get out, they just want to tell me about all these revelations they're having. And mm-hmm. I am not an empathetic person. I could never be a therapist. Couldn't do it. Cause it's just <laughs> really? like, look, I don't know what to tell you. Get over it. You know, like, right. just deal with it. That's so, that's so mean. That's so mean. That's not mean. It's just, it's honest. I appreciate it. I think, you know, I think, um, I think there's a part of us that want to empathize with people's problems and their issues, but I also think there's a really, um, deep part of us too, that we probably would just want to be seen and you've gone through all of that. So even talking about it, it's probably like, gosh, I've been here before. You know what I mean? Like I've already made that revelation and now you're making it later. Nobody's better than anybody else. And at the same time, I mean, when you're a new evolved version of yourself, it is hard to kind of come into contact with that old version or people who knew you of that old version too. I mean, it's hard. Yeah. I think maybe that is what it is, you know, because I am sympathetic. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I want to help where I can't, but I think a, a lot of times when people would tell me about their experience, their trauma in, in the past, it was just kind of like, I don't want to, I don't want to go back to that place. Yeah. Uh, my gosh. I've moved on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, everybody's on a different healing journey and coping journey. And I, th- well, you brought up humor before and I'm, it's interesting because in therapy, I use humor a lot. Like it's like one of my primary things that I use to help people process some deep shit. And I wonder too, if humor might be a sign too of either I'm compartmentalizing too much and I don't want to acknowledge it, or I'm kind of on the other side and I can joke about this now. I mean, I think it could go either way. That's a, you know what? I think the funnier a person is, the more stuff they probably are. So that does make sense. I wonder, sense. I want to know research studies on that. Cause I, I feel like that to be true too. Yeah. Everyone says stand up comedians are so intelligent. They're, they're just abnormally intelligent people. That is not true. I do not feel abnormally intelligent. I just feel extra f-ed up. You've got to give yourself some credit, but I get you. I see where you're coming <laughs> from. I see where you're coming from, but I think, I don't know. I think if you really think about it, comedy in my mind is kind of like an art, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's an art of like, how do I deliver this information in a way where people will understand it and take, take what I'm saying, but also find the really fine line between this is up and this is really funny. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that that's something comedians do really well. I mean, not every comedian, but most that I know. Um, but when it comes to trauma, especially with a cult, I think it is a touchy subject and it is hard for people to, to laugh about it. Um, and there are parts of it that are incredibly traumatic and just are unforgivable. Mm-hmm. But I think if you're able to joke about it, that's kind of where you win a little bit because then you're massaging through that like, okay, this is traumatic and it's really not helping me in any way. Not that trauma helps us with much, but um, but I do think that if you're able to joke about it, it, again, it just connects you to other people. And I think it's incredible. And, and that is the most important thing about stand-up uh, comedy is developing that connection totally. with your audience. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about how being in a cult might lead to... Uh, I don't want to say deviant behavior necessarily, Mm -hmm. but like for, for me, my experience was as soon as I got out of the cult and even before I was out, Mm -hmm. uh, I had started experimenting with various substances, um, Mm -hmm. uh, that I did not, I didn't grow up that way. My my, my parents never endorsed drinking or, or drug use. And so for me, it was just kind of a brand new experience, but I've met so many people that kind of had similar experiences. Is, is there a reason that people tend to gravitate towards, you know, I, I guess behaviors that most people traditionally would consider destructive? It's a really good question. And 
typical psychologist answer is it depends, you know, because there's so many, um, so many variables. I think we think about dispositional personality traits. We think of genetics and all that stuff. And then we also think of environment growing up in a cult, right? And then we think about our own parental influences, peer influences, all these things. And then you think about like socioeconomic status, all these layers, right? But I think if I could generalize, I think when I picture people who have grown up in a cult, there has been, for most people, a lot of points in their life where they've had no choice points, almost zero in terms of the way that you think, the friends that you pick, the activities that you enjoy, the things that you like. I mean, a lot of it is prescribed to you and you don't really have much of a choice. And again, I'm generalizing here. Not everybody in a cult will feel this way, but I do think that there's this almost, um, I'm pretty sure it's called like reaction formation, um, this defense of like, oh, I'm just going to do the opposite because I never had the choice, you know, or I'm going to do this because like I had no autonomy. And it sounds like for you too, it's like, if you've never experimented with that, I could imagine people in high school, other people that, you know, are outside of the cult, maybe they were experimenting with that and they got it out of their system. Maybe that's another option too of like, Hey, I've been here. It wasn't too cool for me so I could keep it moving. But if you've been restricted in that way, you might really want to engage in those things because you never had the chance And then I think it could be destructive because really what you're probably experiencing, and this might not be true for everybody, is now I'm able to have my autonomy. And that means more to me than actually my well-being. So it's almost like this weird misalignment of, you know, your own values too, which is hard. Oh, that's interesting. So it's, I I always just considered it, well, I just overindulged, Mm -hmm. uh, but maybe it was more so just like, now that I finally have this autonomy, it's... I, I don't care about how I'm feeling, how I'm doing. I just want to pursue autonomy uh, as far as I can. Yeah. It could also be like, you know, a fuck you to the cult too. I'm saying like, yeah. hey, I'm just going to do what I want to do now. You know what I mean? It, it could be so many things, but I, I do notice that people who um, are leaving cults or in the process of leaving or who have left, a lot of them struggle with like lifelong issues of autonomy, self-confidence, trusting their intuition, trusting themselves. Um, trusting other people, emotional reciprocity, emotional intimacy. Um, a lot of those things are really hard because you've been taught that a lot of people in cults, at least ones that I've worked with, your value is derived from your ability to be a team player in this experience. And if you are othered in some way, you have a different thought or a different view or something like that, all of a sudden nobody respects you just because you had a thought that was different. You know, um, It's a really hard place to be. That's an interesting point too. Because it really, it really was, you know, you got to obey the rules, mm-hmm. um, follow, follow the leader in, in, in the shiny, happy people cult, the leader was dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the authority figure in the home. And then the cult, but, but really Bill Gothard, because he was kind of the one calling the shots and mm-hmm. directing and leading, you know, doing his seven, you know, principles of whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think, um, you know, definitely that was my mentality Mm -hmm. is just follow the rules, follow the rules, stay out of trouble. I mean, what else are you supposed to do? I mean, that's, that's all you're taught, you know? And, and when you told me about your experience too, because you and I know each other from TikTok, um, when you were telling me about your experience and then I watched the documentary, I was thinking about you the whole time of like, how, how would I react if I was in his shoes or how would I react if I was in that situation? You know, because I grew up very like, laissez-faire. My parents just let me do whatever, you know? So I'm like, if I was in that, how would that change my psychology? You know, how would that change my disposition on the, on the world and how I feel about other people? And again, I just think it's like, you're indoctrinated with so much that there really is no free thinking really. I I mean, there's no free thinking. That was the thing that was notable for me as I was watching that too. 
Um, You're absolutely right. Uh, I, I mean, there, there was not room for you to have your own ideas and opinions unless they aligned with what was already being taught. True. Um, True. And, and wow. so, yeah, you were very, very limited in that way. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly, I don't know, you know, just what the kind of person I am and, and mm-hmm. the kind of person that, that you are, because yeah, I mean, we've gotten to know each other pretty well over, mm-hmm. over social media over the past few years. I don't know how I survived in that environment for as long as I did. Yeah, uh, I think maybe it was just, you know, I was young and naive. Mm-hmm. And, and once I finally kind of had this, um, this awakening, when I was about, you know, 15, 16 years old, that's when it was just really like, okay, I, I definitely can't do this. I want to be my own person. I don't want to be wow. this cookie cutter, you know, Duggar clone that everyone else is trying to be in the cult. Yeah. How did you, how did, if you don't mind me asking, how did you finally find, um, I don't know what the right word is, your voice, the courage, uh, the the will to kind of break away women that's what it was <laughs> hey <laughs> like, you I know what you. i don't blame you i <laughs> i really like girls and yeah, yeah. i don't want to i don't want to be a weirdo yeah. i don't want them to look at me as this super strange awkward nerdy mm-hmm. pious guy mm-hmm. i i want to i want to be attractive to women yeah. i want to develop relationships with women i mean that's you know, I was talking to uh, Josh Harris about mm-hmm. this, who wrote the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Um, you know, courtship and purity culture, that was the mentality in the cult. Wow, that's growing right. Up, yeah, right? yeah. And uh, modesty was a huge thing as well. Mm-hmm. But when I was about 16 years old and, you know, started noticing some of the girls in my church, I was like, that seems a lot more, they seem a lot more interesting to me uh, than maintaining my, my vows of purity and, and not ever kissing until I get married. I'd, right. I'd much rather kind of explore that space <laughs> a little totally. bit. Which is a normal, natural human emotion, human experience. Yeah. So it, natural. Normal yeah. teenager hormonal mm-hmm. stuff. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. We weren't going crazy. You, you know, we weren't having orgies or doing anything wild like that. It was just like, I just, I want to kiss a girl and, yeah. and maybe feel a boob, you know, that's all. That's it. That's, and yeah. and who and who wouldn't you know it's it's just I think it's part of it and I, I I'm so happy that you had that that shift because I noticed for people who are in it for the long haul they have a lot of regret and guilt about like hey I wish I would have came to this conclusion sooner and everybody's on a different path but I'm really glad that you were able to find yourself really honestly I think it's it's great that you were able to find yourself yeah I, I appreciate that it was uh it was a very cool experience kind of breaking away from that mentally and emotionally. Mm -hmm. But the problem with me was, uh, you know, while I was finding my autonomy, I I kind of, rather than serving the cult any longer, I started serving, I guess, uh, hedonism to a degree. (laughs) Um, and really the problem was the, the drugs and alcohol. That's that, that one got me good that I didn't, I didn't break away from that for another, Mm -hmm. at least 10 years. I wonder if like, if there was education in a really objective way about like drugs and alcohol and the effects and having a little bit more of an open mind of like, Hey, if you experiment, it's okay. But just like, make sure like all those things, like having a little bit of a different approach, if maybe your experience with drugs and alcohol would have been different. It just seems like it was just so shunned for so long, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, drugs and alcohol, having a, having a productive dialogue around that Mm -hmm. even just getting the birds and the bees talk, you know, never, never got that had mm-hmm. no clue about anything. Wow. Um, but I think if, if there had been like more of an openness to experimentation, 
yeah. you know, whether that's with, you know, substances or sexuality, whatever the case may be. I mean, that would just fly so hard in the face of everything that the cult stood for, because it really was about preserve your purity at all cost. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that was with the opposite sex or mm -hmm. what you put in your body, uh, what you put in your mind. I mean, even rock music was considered evil um, in the cult. Yeah, we weren't mm -hmm. allowed to listen to even Christian rock music, which How is did... crazy. That is wild to me. <laughs> like, that is so wild. Oh my yeah. gosh. I even, I, so I even think of like, um, just being deprived of the things that just from a very human standpoint, like most humans enjoy music, you know, uh, connecting with other people, sharing thoughts and ideas, doing a little bit of experimentation, having your first kiss, like all of these things are things that most people really look forward to. And, and again, I think there's that, like the rigidness of the cult, while I can understand, like, when I really think about it objectively, I think there is a place for religion. Totally. I'm, you know, not really big into it, but I could really appreciate religion and spirituality and all that. But when I think when it goes to the extreme and you lack your own critical thinking process, that's where it gets a little murky because then during those developmental years of your life, notably like, you know, five to like 19 ish, your prefrontal cortex is still loading. Everything is kind of like, it's not till 27 for men, but you really don't have all of the information that you would probably need to be a successful adult technically because everything is kind of limited you know that's one of the main things that you know i've talked to other former cult members about is they never felt like they had the tools the resources the information to transition into adulthood successfully wow. it's it puts people at such a disadvantage because i think our minds are our greatest asset as humans because it's the one thing that you know, separates us from other mammals. We have the ability to like, just something as simple as like knowing when we're going to die. Like other mammals don't really know that or the ability to critically think or know that we're sentient beings. Like it's, it's just like so interesting to know your background and where you are now. And I hope that you're proud of yourself because that is like a huge, huge accomplishment to grow up in a cult and then create a life for yourself. That's really fulfilling, I'm assuming, um, and worthwhile and worth living, all of those things. And to be able to be a comedian on top of it, I think is a notable trait because think about how, I think it takes a lot for someone to acknowledge all of these things and then get to a place where they can joke about it. It, it just takes a lot. Um, and maybe not for you, but just as a bystander watching you throughout the years, I, I just think it's incredible for you to reach that oh, well, point. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, there there are some things that I'm I'm proud of. There there's some things I'm I'm not so proud of, like my mm -hmm. my just inability to have a uh, a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. I, I, <laughs> why why am I like that, Doctor Casey? Why why can I not have a good, strong, healthy relationship uh, with a woman that I love? What what's what's wrong with me? Can you explain that? Well, for you, it will probably need like several sessions to unpack that one because goodness, there's a lot there. But I, I don't know. I wonder if there's like, um, and I don't, I don't know you as well as like, you know, a therapist would know their client, of course, and it's not therapy. But I do wonder if there's a part of you that is scared of being seen or scared of vulnerability and connection or that emotional reciprocity or, or knowing what love might actually feel like. And maybe there's an element of self-sabotage. I don't know. That could Ooh, be part of it. I, uh, I'm going to make sure. None of my exes see this episode that okay. uh, I can't give them any more ammo than they already have. I thought, is that just like a fancy way of saying I have mommy issues? Is that what I that mean, is? Yeah. Yeah. I don't okay. want to blame your mom, but I mean. Oh, no. She's a great lady. She's a yeah, great lady. Yeah. Uh, great lady. But but I have been told I have mommy issues for sure. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's interesting. I think with mommy issues, people like chalk it up as like, oh, it's just not a good relationship with your mom. I really think it's like you were probably taught like relationship with women is different, you know, obviously because of what you went through, but maybe it's, maybe it's that maybe it's also too, like you kind of have a deeper, I noticed that people who are raised in cults, they have this like deeper sense of like, not existentialism, but connection. Like they're able to sit in a room with somebody and just exist and talk without like distractions of like everything else. And that might be intimidating for some people too, like on the receiving end, not a bad thing, you know? It's, um, it's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I've just been told that I, I have a, uh, my relationship with my mother is just too close. Um, mm-hmm. She's too involved in my life and that yeah. I involve her too much in my life. I don't know if that's just the cult or... Mm-hmm. Just the fact that I'm a mama's boy. I, I don't yeah. know. I mean, it falls under mommy issues, so you might be right. Um, but yeah. I don't know. I think relationship with our mom, I don't know. I think it depends if you think it's helping or harming. It really is up to you to decide, really. Um, oh, well, I would I would never give up my relationship with my mother, so I don't sure. care what it's doing. Um, moms are gems. Most moms are gems. <laughs> that's yeah. that's my moms. mom. Yeah. yeah. It is kind of interesting that me having mommy issues, I am most attracted to women with daddy issues. That's usually how it works. Yeah. <laughs> is it? Is that a normal yeah. thing? Okay. You know, I don't know if it's normal as much as it is coincidental, as much as it is like rooted in some sort of like trauma bond or or what have you. But I think for people who have attachment issues or relationship or interpersonal issues in some sense, especially as it relates to intimacy, if you were to date somebody with like no trauma, everybody has trauma, but like relative, relatively speaking, no trauma at all, I don't know if that would work. I really don't know how that would work because think about it. If you grow up with someone who has had less experiences where they have struggled in that way, you're not better than anybody and and vice versa, but you might not be seen in the way that you're hoping, you know, that person might not be able to read you or hear you or see you. Like if I think about, um, even my previous partners too, or anything like that, I think all of them have had some level of trauma you know, deep trauma, you know, because I'm like, if I show up, I'm a little chaotic. I hope they could handle it, you know, uh, cause I fly off the wall too sometimes. So I'm like, if I was with somebody who was like clean cut and buttoned up and all of that, I don't know if that would work for me. Is it a preference? Maybe. Is it part of the psychology of it? Who knows? Um, but just hypotheses. All I know is that it seems like every single time there is a magnetic attraction between me and I'm going to call them, um, exotic athletes put it that way gotcha. uh it's just every single time it does not matter what the scenario or the circumstance or the environment mm-hmm. is it always seems like i find these dancers or they find me mm-hmm. and we are just i mean two peas in a pod it's crazy yeah yeah you know i think when we think about our preferences for partners too it could be based on trauma it could also just be based on like i don't want to live a complacent life and a lot of people who have experienced trauma, they are either funny or they have different personalities and stuff like that. It, you know, it just really depends. Yeah. It's like, I don't want to have the the white picket fence and one and a half kids. I want to go crazy and let's go crazy together. Let's just go nuts. You know? Yeah. Let's take over the world. I love that. And there are people out there who want that white picket fence and they find their partner, right? And that, that's totally valid. But I think if you know for sure that's not what you want, then- I think that's a beautiful thing too, you know, go crazy, go, go nuts, you know, yeah, who cares? If you want that white picket fence, uh, go, go live your best boring life. I know. You know, I that's, know. that's kind of how I feel about it. I love that. I love that you pointed out 
they're, you know, my, <laughs> my inner up child is attracted to other inner up children. <laughs> you know, I think there's a, there's an element of, we call it in psychology, like being seen, you know, being able to be really seen, like, you know, if somebody really gets you, you know, that feeling. And I think for people who have experienced trauma, they're just hoping that people see them in a way that they're hoping to be perceived. I think that's really it. And I think if you know that the other person may have gone through things that are like maybe not similar or maybe things that like you can't really relate to or vice versa, you're ultimately going to be speaking a little bit of a different language. It's not to say that people who have trauma can't connect with people who don't have intense trauma. That's not what I'm saying. But I think there's a level of like comfort in knowing like I'm not the only up one here, you know? Right. We've been, we've both been through some things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. I have to find like my up Cinderella. It's not going to work for me to go yeah. pursue the, 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 the woman that's never been through anything because mm -hmm. the relatability probably just isn't really there. And she's probably going to be a great person, you know, not saying that, but it's like, yeah, the relatability might not, might not be there, you know, and it's all preference. Yeah, and they, they always just want to fix me. Those those women oh. just fix, fix, fix me, and mm. it never works out, and we both end up real sad. Um, Can't fix your partner. Yeah, you, yeah. that's a big no, one. That, that doesn't work at all, at no. least not, not in my experience. Maybe there's some people it has worked for, but yeah. for me, no. I just mm – -hmm. uh, Oh, man, I just end up ruining their lives. <laughs> oh my gosh! So you're a fuckboy. Got it. Okay, didn't know that. About I don't. You. I don't think that's. You know that is that is that like a a therapy endorsed term, Doctor? No, no, I'm just playing. Huh. Okay. What <laughs> what what is the therapy endorsed? Like, if you were going to say it in therapist terms, how would you identify a fuckboy? Hmm. Where do I start? Um couple of terms that come to mind might be emotionally unavailable, um, attachment issues, mommy issues. I'm sorry, I'm calling you out oh, right now, but that's wow. really who it is. Um, <laughs> what else? What else? Uh, you know, uh, oh, there's so many that are kind of like derogatory too that I don't want to say If you really say narcissistic, I swear to God. I don't want to say it. I don't want to say it because that's not it. That's not it. I think that's a term. I have really strong views about that. Like that's a term that's thrown around. There's like not many people who are actually meet criteria for it, but right. Yeah. That's what I always thought, but yeah. I'm a narcissist by everyone. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think being caring about yourself is different than being narcissistic. When mm. you're narcissistic, you are really into having the spotlight on you in a way where it's grandiose and you want people to acknowledge that, but in a way that puts them down, you know? So there's mm. this like really weird power differential on top of people who have true NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, they they really truly only care about how they're perceived. So like mm. really, uh, they don't really care about other people's emotions or feelings as much as they care about being perceived. It's all, it's all about hierarchy in their own minds, but. That's so interesting. You know what, while, while we're at it, what is gaslighting actually? Because everyone throws that term around too. And I don't, I feel like I used to know what it was and now I'm not sure yeah. I do anymore. What do you, what do you think it is? I'm curious to hear first. So gaslighting to me is making another person feel crazy for like a thought or opinion that they have, even though they're potentially right. Oh, you nailed it. I did. 
You I nailed knew it. I knew what it was, and I knew you I wasn't it. a gaslighter. I knew you I wasn't a gaslighter. You nailed it. Yeah, it's it's a form of um, we call it like a psychological manipulation. I know that word is mm. pretty charged, um, but the person kind of attempts to, I don't know, uh, incite self doubt into that person um, and confusion, and kind of like they loop them through like some you know, a conversation in which they doubt their own intuition and their own thoughts. And then they actually not be, they might not agree with the person who's gaslighting, but they tend to question their own reality. I think that's the main part of like, Mm. I'm questioning my own reality. And then their reality becomes distorted to match whatever this person who's gaslighting is trying to achieve. And I think a lot of it is for secondary gain. Um, And sometimes people don't know that they're gaslighting. They just, they just don't know. They're just trying to get their needs met. So I think it could be really traumatic for people. And it could also be this um, kind of like a blissful ignorance sort of thing where they don't realize they're doing it. Because uh, gaslighting is, you could be taught that from parents or friends or something like that. And you might not know you're doing it. But but the point is, like, if I ask someone, where do you want to go eat? Mm-hmm. And they tell me, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I tell them, just pick a place. Mm-hmm. And they tell me, you're gaslighting me. That's not gaslighting, right? No, that's just either a difference of opinion or the other person feeling on the spot. I just wanted to make sure about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and most of us don't know where the hell we want to eat. I get it. You know, it's, I do every time, (laughs) every time I know where I want to eat, but I pick a place and then that's a problem where I want (laughs) to eat is a problem. Yep. And so I just ask, Hey, where do you want to eat? Since you don't like where I want to eat, where do you want to eat? And then Mm -hmm. I become a gaslighter and a narcissist and potentially a sociopath. You, know, you, might be a, you might be a sociopath, but we're, we're, we still love you. So I'm kidding. You're not a sociopath <laughs> by any means. You are not. You are not. I'm joking. Um, I, you know what is crazy to me is that because of the experience that I had growing up in a cult and mm-hmm. the way that I tend to, like you said, compartmentalize, um, there were periods of time, especially like right before I got sober and right after I got sober, mm-hmm. that I was legitimately concerned that I was a sociopath because I wow. thought about it. And I, yeah. I, I thought about like, how would I feel if, you know, this person left, was no longer a part of my yeah. life? And I was like, yeah. I, I don't think I'd care. What if this person yeah. passed away? Still don't think I'd care. And then I was just like, wait, my sociopath that just doesn't care about anyone but myself? Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like you were kind of feeling that lack of, I wouldn't even say empathy, but maybe you were feeling a lack of connection to just emotions, you know? I mean, because you can't really selectively feel emotions. It's either like, I know a lot of people are like, oh, I just want to feel the happy ones or just, you know, I'm always feeling the sad ones. But I think a lot of it is protective in a way, because Mm. I'm sure that a lot of people in your life have not been so kind to you when you were in the cult, you know? So you're like, oh, I got to keep myself safe. And if I'm emotionally vulnerable, that opens me up to a whole host of issues, you know, that I might not be able to recover from. Who knows? Well, yeah, it was almost like if you are emotionally vulnerable in the cult, and and you told someone what you were struggling with or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the case may be, they could use that information to manipulate or guilt trip or, or whatever. Yes. And so I feel yes. like a lot of that did carry over. I think you're absolutely right about that. That is so, my God, that's so hard. I'm just thinking about how difficult that is to really be, because you know what it's like to be emotionally vulnerable, or maybe you don't because you're a sociopath. But when you <laughs> open up, I'm messing with you. Um, when you open up, um, when you open up emotionally, you really are putting everything on the table. It's like you're putting all of your emotions and all of your stuff in the middle of the room, and you and that person are just looking at it. It's a really mm-hmm. scary place to be. And if you know that that's going to be used against you, why would you open up again? 
yeah. it makes sense. It makes sense why you wouldn't. It makes sense. I, I feel like a lot of these former cult kids that that I know, um, some of them that I grew up with, some of them that I met later in life, um, I think that they really struggle with exactly what you're talking about there. Yeah. I don't want to be vulnerable because I'm afraid it's going to be used against me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that carries into relationships. I think that that probably is a, a big part of of my problem in relationships. The yeah. the common feedback I get is I don't even know if you care about me. It's like, well, of course I care about you. I spend all this right. time with you. Mm-hmm. Like, like you're you're a huge part of my life. Of course yeah. I care about you, but mm-hmm. they just don't feel that emotional vulnerability or maybe that connection at times. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it too, I want to be sensitive to the fact that like men are working against a lot when it comes to this, you know, not all men are taught how to be emotionally vulnerable and open and, and that usually isn't celebrated for men traditionally, you know? So I think there's that plus the cult. I mean, plus like, oh my gosh, like, how do I know if I could trust this person? You know, I have a history of relationship issues. Is this going to work out? I mean, all those things make sense. And I think when you think about emotional reciprocity, you might also be deriving yourself of really experiencing deep love and belonging, which you probably deserve. You know, hmm. it's it's a really tough place to be. But I think if you are feeling that sense of like, okay, I'm getting this feedback in every relationship, I guess the question to ask yourself is what is my biggest fear? What's my biggest fear in relationships? Like if if just say if I were to like jump in, what's my biggest fear? Hmm. Probably disappointment. Mm-hmm. Or, or fa- actually failure. I think it would be the okay. failure of the relationship would be the biggest fear for sure. Yeah. Wow. That's a big one. Yeah. And when you think about failure, it's really connected to cult stuff, right? Because Very it's like, if so. I fail, that means I'm not good enough. And if I'm not good enough, that means I'm not worthy. And if I'm not worthy, what's what's the point really? And, and to avoid that failure, you just don't start in the first place. Can't fail mm-hmm. if I don't Can't get in a relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and, and then you might be feeling that sense of, and again, I'm assuming a lot here, but when you do find somebody that you're interested in, all the feelings come up because you're like, oh, I have access to these feelings right now. This is great. And it probably feels so intense. And then when you start in with them, potentially you might pull back mentally, emotionally, whatever, because you're like, oh, it's getting too serious. I don't, I don't mm. want this to fail. Who knows? Yeah, I think I think there's definitely I think that's a huge aspect of, of why I struggle with. relationships. Yeah. I was kind of curious because you, you kind of mentioned about like men's health and, you know, mm-hmm. not really being cool to be like emotionally available. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the psychology of why women are always attracted to the bad boys? Mm. What's going on with that? Yeah, that's still up for debate. Um, and other psychologists might disagree with me. We all have different views on these things anyway. But um, I sometimes think that it could be a lot of us want excitement. A lot of us want spontaneity. A lot of us want all of those fun things, but we also want the stability thing. So when you think about women who are traditionally attracted to men who are quote unquote bad boys, whatever that means to the listeners, um, it could be, I want this excitement. I want something different. I want to feel something, you know, but I think with that, when you choose someone who's emotionally unavailable, they're never really going to be there to catch you emotionally. They might be a great person. You might have fun, but when things get real, like when shit hits the fan, that's kind of when you start to notice, Ooh, now this isn't so fun anymore. And now I'm in this cycle of this relationship of now there's this anxious attachment potentially, and then the avoidance, and then you're just doing this dance, you know, of like we can never catch each other. So I think of it this way. If you're able to find someone that you find excitement with and you could share moments with, but you could also be emotionally vulnerable with, that's kind of where you win. But I do think for men, it's really hard. Honestly, mm. it's just really, really, really hard to go there because you're kind of competing with 
other men, which that's really the competition, right? If you think about traditional heterosexual relationships, and then you're even thinking about ego, which is like, how are other people perceiving me? Notably, not only men, but, or not only women, but other men. I think sometimes we lose sight of that. It's not like you're attracted to men, but what are other men thinking of me? You know, um, cause women feel that way too. Of like, I mean, Maybe some of us are attracted to other men. We don't know for sure. Dr. Casey, we never know. Maybe we haven't explored that yet. Maybe we grew up in a cult. We don't know if we like men. Maybe everybody's a little gay. We don't know. You know what I mean? Hey, it's a spectrum, right? Yeah, it is a spectrum. (laughs) Oh, boy. Everyone likes men a little bit. A tiny bit, you know? Like for me, Matt Reif, I would. Would go there. Smash. You know what I mean? Um, (laughs) But. (laughs) Oh, my God. Just a regular dude on the street. No, I'm not attracted to him at all. Totally. Yeah. No, that's so funny. Um, oh my God. I totally lost my train of thought there, but <laughs> Sorry. no, that was fun. That was so fucking funny. Yeah. It's, I don't know. Relationships are just weird. And I, I do think trauma informs our perception about relationships and how willing we are to go there emotionally. But if nobody has ever taught us to feel safe with our emotions, it's going to be really hard to open up really yeah. hard. Yeah. Well, and I mean, we all know that nice guys finish, finish last and it's, it's hard to, it's hard to separate from that mentality. It is. I, I mean, that's what I grew up with. Yeah. You know, if you cry, you're a bitch. Totally. Uh, so don't cry. Totally. Don't show any emotional vulnerability mm-hmm. and just just stuff it all down. Just take all that emotion, just just ball it up and mm-hmm. shove it way, way down. Mm-hmm. So no one ever sees it. Yeah. Nobody will ever see it and nobody will ever know. And And I think there's a balance, right, of like, hey, can I be emotionally open while also maintaining my sense of like, I could put this away at any time. You know, um, and mm. is my partner going to see that? Is my partner going to be cool at that? Because I think you also have to find someone who's going to be open to all versions of you, you know, which is really important. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that it sounds ideal what you're saying. I, I think maybe part of the problem is the the type of women that I have historically been in relationships with, um, you know, maybe that's where I'm getting this this feeling that if I show any, as soon as I let them know, I care about you. I love you. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I want to be with you. It's almost like that's when they lose interest. There's no longer a chase. It's no oh. longer a challenge. Um, and so I'm wondering if that just has more to do with the, the types of partners that I've been picking. It's up for debate. Yeah. Cause I, cause I think that there are people, and it, I think it depends on everybody's like intimate intimacy goals. I know it sounds really mm. weird to think about out loud, but like some people really value the chase. And then in terms of longevity, they feel like it's foreign. Like, how do I actually be in a stable long-term relationship and still feel this sense of like excitement about this person? You know, a lot of people don't want that to leave and they don't want that to be fleeting. They want it to stay. I I think that that's a a massive issue for, for me and, and a lot of other guys that I know. And Mm -hmm. interestingly Mm -hmm. enough, um, especially in, well, at least my comedy community, Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't even say we're, we're all fuck boys necessarily. Um, certainly not all bad boys. Uh, right. I don't even consider my, I, I consider myself a, a reformed bad boy, uh, because I'm so, <laughs> I love it. how nerdy yeah. can you be? I don't even ride a motorcycle. What a loser I am. You know, sobriety is very attractive for most. Like I just, I think that sobriety is really difficult. And if people are able to maintain sobriety, it's like the willpower, unless you've gotten sober, you might not know what it feels like, but the willpower to do that is so hard. I mean, it's really difficult, you know, you know, yeah, I think this is, this is once again, just kind of evidence that, uh, maybe it's just the, the women that I've found myself in relationships with who don't find sobriety attractive because they are so toxic themselves. Maybe that's part of the issue. Who knows? I don't know. 
could. Who knows? I'm sure they were nice ladies. I gotta stop dating strippers. <laughs> yeah, maybe you're maybe you're a little gay. We don't know. Maybe, try, try the other side. Maybe that'll work out better. I mean, switch joke. teams, or or maybe not even switch teams. Just switch it for a little bit. You could go back. I mean, you Give could fluctuate. I mean, yeah. I I was in emo bands. I've 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 kissed. You were a boy in before. emo bands. I was. There's no yeah. way. There's no I way. I was. Yeah. Yeah. I'm afraid. There's so I think that was another form of my rebellion. I'm gonna play in a rock band because I was never allowed to listen to rock music. There's so I'm going to so take much- all this classical musical training that my parents gave me and parlay that into screamo bands. There is so much to unpack here. Holy shit. About oh me being my- emo? About you in general. Oh. Being in a cult and everything. That's, oh my gosh. Wow. I wore the I eyeliner and everything. What'd you say? I wore the eyeliner and everything, Dr. Casey. I mean, it was- Did it you was, serious? Was there, I can't oh, picture yeah. it. I cannot picture it. I'll I'll find some photos. I think I have one or two oh my still goodness. hanging around. Growing up in a cult, getting out of the cult, getting sober, I've obviously seen my fair share of therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on therapists are probably the most fucked up people, like the craziest of people? Oh, yeah. We're real fucked up. Um, Is that true? I think so. I think not every therapist has gone through like crazy. I can't speak for every therapist, but I could speak for at least my community of therapists. Most of us have gone through some like real fucked up shit, you know? And I think it helps, at least for me, my trauma has helped me create space for other people's trauma, you know, and create that connection and, and all that. But it's also kind of, I just have such thick skin when I hear about stuff, you know what I mean? It's like nothing really phases me. Like I have like a lot of empathy for my clients. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm in there with them, like feeling what they're feeling and all that stuff. But nothing that anybody tells me is like alarming to me. You know what I mean? Not only from doing it for so long, but kind of the stuff that we go through, we're just like, okay, we're all kind of fucked up. Let's figure this out. You know what I mean? Um, But I do think that therapists, like a lot of us will go into this field because we either want to fix people. We have mommy or daddy issues, or we're just like, at least I got into the field because I just wanted to learn more about people. Cause I just really enjoy people. I think people are the greatest, you know, um, I think they're just amazing. Um, and I just really wanted to learn more and connect more, but I think trauma really, I don't know if it's like a rite of passage for therapists or what, but every therapist I meet has had something like something, you know, that's what it seems like to me. Like, yeah, I've had a couple friends who, you know, were psychiatrists or psychologists Mm -hmm. and they were some of the wildest, most, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to call them toxic, but that's the only word I can think of. I mean, just really toxic people in a fun way, like toxic in a fun way, you know, like not hurting animals or anything like that. Like toxic, like they're going to go out, they're going to get so wasted that they cause a scene, potentially get, you know, dragged out of a bar, maybe arrested. Who Who knows? Who knows? But that's the therapist that I've known. Yeah. It's, I, I think there's a fine line between ensuring that you're taking care of your own shit while you help your clients. Cause I think a lot of us, I, I was in this headspace for a little bit too early in my career. Like, Oh, if I help people with their problems, I don't have to think about mine, you know? Mm. And then here I was being that toxic person who like, yeah, would drink, get too drunk, stuff like that. I don't drink like that anymore. Thank God. Um, and I've had moments of sobriety too, which is helpful. But I think that if you don't handle your own shit as a therapist, you're just a little ineffective with your life doesn't mean you're an ineffective therapist in practice, but you have to, you have to fix your shit too. You know, it, it does seem kind of disingenuous for a therapist to, to sit there and tell you do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. That also sounds kind of strange. Up. Yeah. Yeah. I even tell my clients, I'm like, you know, for my clients who, you know, just say struggle with substances or something like that. I might say, okay, if you are going to smoke weed, 
I'm not going to say no, because I get it. And at the end of the day, how helpful is it? Are you actually handling your shit or are you just smoking it away? What are you doing? You know? So I think there's definitely a fine line of how to deliver it, but there are therapists out there like, oh, sit and meditate. And they've never meditated a day in their life. So it's important to vet them out. Well, that's, you know, the, the interesting thing about, uh, let's call it plant-based medicine, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I believe in, in the benefits of plant-based sure. medicine, mm -hmm. but you have to take it as a medicine. I, I heard another yes. comedian buddy of mine mm -hmm. say this, uh, Craig, uh, he goes, um, you know, you don't just sit there and chug Dimetap all day. <laughs> right. You use it as yes. prescribed. Mm -hmm. you, you dose it correctly. And I think it's got to be the same thing with plant-based medicine. I just 100%. thought that was such an interesting observation. No, that's a really good observation. Because I even think like in terms of like the duration of use, the frequency of use, how much you're using. I mean, there's a therapeutic effect and then it's not so therapeutic after a while. It depends how much you're taking. Yeah. Then it becomes abuse. <laughs> then it becomes an issue, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I've done that with every pill imaginable. Uh, and <laughs> look at you now. <laughs> it was just such a fun time. And yeah, look at me now. I can't look remember anything about my childhood. It's yeah. wild. I have memory <laughs> issues. I have cognitive issues. Here I am. <laughs> oh my, that, that was one of the other questions I was going to ask you, Dr. Casey was just, um, you know, I have like these crazy blank spaces where mm -hmm. my friends will remember stuff that we've done. Um, maybe my family, mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've had these experiences that that people will tell me about, and I have no recollection of it. Do you think that's more so like a a, a drug abuse thing, mm -hmm. or do you think that's that's like a a brain thing, like just yeah. keeping myself safe or something like that? Yeah, yeah, really, really great observations. I think it could be a combination of both. I, I think depending on the type of use, the type of substance, all that stuff. I mean, we do know from the research that there are cognitive effects, there's memory effects, there's all these things that substances they affect our brain drastically, you know, and depending on when you use too is really important too. Like, were you in that developmental age where your prefrontal cortex was still growing and all that stuff and developing? Oh, big time. Yeah. Big you know, time so, yeah. so it could be a lot of that. I think for people who grow up in cults and people who have gone through like, in my opinion, you know, really deep elements of like, you don't have a sense of control. There's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of like lack of choice, all of those things a lot of times our brains do kind of shut off to keep ourselves safe when we're in really traumatic experiences and we might not know it at the time. You know, our brains are just doing it because they just kind of are like, oh, this is kind of fucked up. We probably should remember this, you know? Um, it could also be an effect of aging. You know, sometimes we just don't, we just don't remember certain things. I mean, think about it. Our brains only have a certain amount of capacity, you know? So if we're going to remember, uh, you know, the Pythagorean theorem versus like my 21st birthday, it's probably gonna be our 21st birthday if we don't use the Pythagorean theorem that often, you know? So that also matters. I feel like you just called me a crazy old guy. I, feel I like think you're a little old. Yeah. Me. I think we're overlooking that. You know, I think you're ancient. See what's happening here? You're, you're just aging. Might be early onset dementia. We don't know for sure, but you are, <laughs> you look, you look pretty rough, bud. Uh <laughs> you are not aging gracefully. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes. Yes. <laughs> You look like shit. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, that's so funny. Oh my god, I can't. I uh, would be the worst comedian because I'd be like, actually, I didn't mean that. You're a great person, you know. I'm so um, sorry. No, I didn't mean to say it like that. No, yeah. no, no, guys, I promise. I just have to say it. Yeah. No, you look great, but I, I think, yeah, it could, it could be trauma. It could be, it could be a variety of things. I have so many more questions, so much more. I'd love to talk to you about Dr. Casey, mm -hmm. uh, but I know we're out of time right now. And, uh, before we leave, I wanted you to tell everyone where they can find you online, because I know people are going to want to reach out, check out your content, uh, because it is, it's so good. Y'all, you really need to check out Dr. Casey's social media. Where can they find you? 
Oh, you're sweet. Um, you can find me on Instagram. I'm on TikTok too, not as active there, but if you're on Instagram and you want like funny mental health content, mental health content that has like an air of humor, you know, but it could be a little deep, uh, you'll probably want to follow me. So Dr. Oh, Kristen yeah. Casey on Instagram. Dr. Kristen Casey. And you also have a podcast, I believe. Do you want oh, to tell yeah. people about your podcast? Yeah. So the podcast is with three other mental health professionals, two other therapists, or no, two other psychologists and a therapist. And we have really fun banter. It's really light. We talk about really deep mental health topics, but in a light way for people to, to understand. It's called Welcome to Group Therapy. Yeah. So if you want to have an existential crisis, go check that out. Please have uh, existential crises. That's it. That's our goal. That's our goal is to make you question your whole life. Yeah. Well, Dr. Casey, thank you so, so much. Uh, this has been such an interesting conversation. I hope we can follow this up with a part two because, man, there's just so much more I think we should talk about. And I want to get into uh, more of the the therapy stories that you have because mm-hmm. uh, I know you've had some crazy ones, uh, some yeah. crazy, crazy encounters. Totally, totally down. Would love to come for a part two. Awesome. Y'all, please like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next Wednesday. Thank you so much again to Dr. Casey. We love you. Bye.